Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If you want to join the passionate product people party, then why don't you pop over to onenightinproduct.com, sign up for the mailing list, or go to the podcast app of your choice, subscribe, and make sure you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we'll talk about the exciting world of data product management, how our guest started out as an analyst at a bank, decided she didn't like it, and up sticks and took her MBA to the magical world of product management. We talk about what it's like to be a product manager when you're surrounded by data scientists and expert machine learning engineers. We talk about some of the things you have to consider when data is so integral to your product, some of the explainability concerns and some of the ethical concerns around data in product. We also get some insight into what it's like to be a young up-and-coming woman starting out in your career and how you have to work twice as hard to fight against the constant barrage of sexism, assumptions and patronising comments. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So, my guest tonight is Emily Reed. Emily's a part-time tarot card reader, and she's drawn the night card tonight. Former parking enforcement officer who's hung up her high-vis jacket and is now filling up her notebook with product management insights and complicated data science algorithms instead. Emily can't stand inadequate social networkers and unsolicited advice, so my suggestion is... Oh, no, no, let's not do that. Um, <laughs> currently working as a product manager of data solutions for FCT. Passionate about demystifying data, so I'm looking forward to solving the age-old singular versus plural debate. Hi, Emily. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm good. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you very much. So, first things first, this data or these data? Wow. I mean, you know, in Canada, we take influence from American grammar, so they'll always say this data. That being said, it's really funny because if you want to consider it like data as a whole package, then it's this data, but it's really this datum. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it sounds like you've been pragmatic enough that we can probably still be friends. So that's the most important that's thing. That's good. I appreciate it. I'm very much a this data type of guy. I don't know. I always think of it as like a collection of one, like it's one collection of multiple points, right? Exactly. So down to business, who are FCT and what problem do they solve? Ah, so FCT has been around for 30 years in Canada, but they are piggybacked off the back of First American, and it's a title insurance company. So a lot of people don't know what that is. Long story short, your house is yours, but the land and everything associated with it needs insurance too, so that various things don't happen. That could be, you know, there's like a lien on the property, and all of a sudden you're charged for it. Or I know in condos, for instance, if the condo doesn't disclose a special assessment, which means there's a bunch of money you have to pay. FCT steps in and takes care of that for you. So title insurance is one of those things that people don't think about, but is actually really important and can save you a lot of money. But we're pivoting right now. And that's what I love the most. FCT has come from a very traditional background and we're moving towards becoming a technology company, which I absolutely love. Data-driven, the whole shebang. And that's why they hired me. <laughs> but that's interesting though, because... Like you say, a big old company, a lot of tradition, a lot of history behind it. That's not mm -hmm. always the easiest of transformations. Is that something that, that you feel is going well so far? I mean, I've only been there a month, but they were building out for the past year and a bit the data strategy group that I'm part of. And honestly, the fact that they have bandwidth to hire into that group means they're growing, right? And we do have 
you know, outside partners that are very interested in what we're building. So I think that kind of validates a bit of it. There is the sacrifice of the agile mindset that kind of comes up right now because we're so used to waterfall (laughs) planning, which is unique for me because I come from startups. So I'm used to everybody doing everything. You know, it's just, it's a different thing. But the positives is that we get to evoke change in the organization as the data group, which is sweet. But are you starting to move them towards more agile frameworks or is that just not on the cards at the moment? I think that's the goal over the next couple of months. You know, it's a little bit of a glacial pace at first, but the necessity is very obvious, if that makes sense, especially with what we're targeting for the next year. There's no way that the current process could withstand the sheer amount of change. Yeah, well, fingers crossed for that one. Yeah. But what do you do for FCT? Obviously, you say you've just started and you're working on Mm -hmm. some exciting stuff and you're doing this transformation. But what are you specifically doing for FCT? Right now, I'm lucky and I'm getting paid to learn, which is awesome. So I get to learn from everybody (laughs) there. But what I'm going to be doing is building out their API offerings. So the one thing about being in insurance or anything financial, which I'm sure you can relate to, is the wealth of data that's around. Just the sheer amount alone that we own is shocking. And we've also ended up in a partnership with a great property company, Opta, that can give us even more data. So now we have all of this stuff. And the truth is that in Canada, in particular, real estate, at least residential real estate, is very behind the times when it comes to leveraging technologies. So we're looking to help get there. And one of those things is exposing all this data we have. And why not? It's a goldmine. Like, why wouldn't you want to do it? So we're developing a whole suite and a marketplace for these APIs that we do have. So right now we have a property lookup service, which is incredible. There's going to be a whole lot more coming down the pipe. And building in that marketplace and that place for developers to come to is really important. And that's my role as being the voice of these users, these developers, and creating that really nice experience that exists for companies in the in the States in particular that we look to. So it sounds like you're building a bit of a platform there, which is obviously really interesting and, and something I'm pretty interested in my day job as well. But mm-hmm. is that a platform that's aimed mainly at Ontario or is that pan-Canadian or is that something that's got even wider ambitions than that? Canada-wide right now is the uh, is the goal. So we've got data from uh, coast to coast, you know, so it's really great. Well, that's cool. Mm-hmm. But before that, you started out in banking as an analyst. <laughs> yeah. You had a couple of jobs in banking before moving into product. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that analyst role really proves that you have an interest in data. Mm-hmm. But what was it that, that made you move from being an analyst in a bank to starting to work in product? A little bit of luck and a little bit of culture. So I went and did my MBA and it afforded me the opportunity to rotate through a bunch of different banking roles and also working at a hospital, which was wild. But the one thing that I found was, you know, I did the banking roles. They were good. And I was like, I'm still going to be an investment banker or a sales and trading analyst or something. This is going to be good. And then I went and started interviewing for full time and was like, I don't really care for this, but I'm going to keep going because my entire (laughs) MBA is in finance and business valuation. So like strictly financial. Of course, there's a couple courses you can take that round you out a bit. But at the end of the day, it is what it is. And then my friend was like, I don't think you actually like that. I think you would like this and offered to hook me up for an opportunity at my first product job at BrainStation. And I thought it was marketing. And I said, no. (laughs) And then he bugged me again. And then I said, yes. And 
honestly, it was really just the person who I was working for was incredible. And I just was so done with the interview process. It was so, for me, misogynistic. Oh my gosh. Someone told me if I had bigger boobs, I'd be hired, (laughs) which was lovely. All the way to, I just realized the work-life balance wasn't there and that my impact didn't matter. So... Right. So then you moved into product. And, mm-hmm. and as you say, you've got your MBA. I did. Was that your only kind of pre-product experience? Or did you do other courses and any kind of training to, to give you some of those hard skills? Uh, no, I jumped right in. It was uh, baptism <laughs> by fire. Wholeheartedly had never seen agile in my life kind of thing. Like very, very green. Understood the idea, but was like, I don't, I don't really get this. But yeah, it was a really good way to start. And I know a lot of people would say, oh, take a course or do something. I mean, yes, because the job market's competitive. But no, because if you know somebody and you can get that sort of like just thrown in and immersed, that's where you learn the most. And I'm a huge believer in that because you can see if someone's going to be good at product more or less in the interview and when you speak with them and look at their past, right? So my whole background before my MBA was in biotechnology, data heavy, right? So it's funny that I've ended up in data in in now, but that's what drove BrainStation and my boss there to kind of connect with me and be like, you know, you can do that. Like you can do data science education products because you've been looking at things under a microscope and you know, and you understand stats all the way to, but what if the people that you were making those things for actually understood? And that's what it's my MBA and I went, that's all what I really wanted anyway. So it worked out. And I had a lot of past marketing experience, which kind of helped. Yeah. But speaking about the learning then, and that's another really interesting point. I know that before this, we talked and you've also got a big, strong interest in data science, machine learning, mm-hmm. but you didn't have any education None. formally <laughs> in any of that either. Nope. Now, I'm not going to judge you for that because I'm a uh, university dropout myself and I've had to teach myself pretty much everything on the job but you're going to be working with a lot of smart people when you're doing Mm. product management for for, with data science machine learning and lots of complicated stuff going around that that I struggle to understand having worked in it myself so how did you skill up in those areas yeah well the one thing that was sort of a blessing for me was that I was building data science education products so it was like getting the foundation because I actually had to learn. But I was also the one that uh, our subject matter experts or the educators at BrainStation tested on a lot because they were like, if M can do it and like get through this module, (laughs) then we know it's actually learnable, right? And I mean, realistically, the people that are taking those BrainStation courses are even more ahead in their data education than I was. So if I could do it, they certainly could do it. The other flip side of that is, again, having that scientific background and the applied technology piece, because my program was partnered with university and college. It was just like, I learned by doing. So I really lucked out in that sense. But speaking to your point about dealing with really smart people all the time, if you as a PM think you're the smartest person in the room, change your job. Get out. <laughs> no, seriously, you cannot be the smartest person in the room. You you just can't. That's not an acceptable way to come into the process, but also it means that either you learn too much and you need to move on because I'm sure you would agree PMs are always looking for the next challenge or opportunity, or on the flip side that you have zero understanding of what the people on your team actually do. 
And yes, I'm very blunt, but that's just how I feel. <laughs> and that's, that's absolutely fair. And there's obviously the cliche about asking the right questions and not having the answers. And, and obviously that's something that we should all strive for. But as a, as a former developer myself, it's always interesting to to have opinions about things, but but you have to try and keep inside your lane. And Yeah, I can imagine that's tough. Yeah, but with regards to that, I mean, do you find yourself keeping inside your lane pretty pretty effectively or do you sometimes start thinking you know given that you've done some of this these courses and had some of this background now done some of this learning that that you want to start getting involved in some of the how as well I think I just like to know how it works so what my big thing is with developers in general is if you can tell me how it works I'm pretty satisfied because I'm I'm a terrible coder I am horrible with documenting I'm horrible with naming things joke stuff and then like <laughs> you know so i i don't have that foresight and honestly i don't build architecture or anything so it's not like i can understand how it all hooks up but if they can't explain to me why it does something i think that kind of speaks to the breakdown in communication that's going to ensue for the end user eventually because if i don't know how it works and they can't tell me how it works you bet your butt the user is not going to know how it works right so I don't know. I think there's sort of like this nice piece of that, which means that your developer team gets to educate you. And realistically, they are the subject matter experts when it comes to how this thing actually comes to life. So you get to teach, which is kind of awesome. And I I like that part. But do you find it quite easy to translate the very hardcore data science stuff into really meaningful user facing material? Is that something that you find that you're particularly good at? I'm I'm so bad. I never like to say I'm good at things. <laughs> but I would say it's definitely easier for me having come from that weird technological background where they're like, what was your what is your stuff in? And I'm like, oh, you know. So for instance, um, my thesis was making an iron nanoparticle solution to try to eradicate cancer. And it's like, how do you explain that? I'm like, it's like a bunch of ninja stars like breaking up cancer cells, right? <laughs> so that's kind of the thing is I think I learned that skill a bit earlier on, which is very beneficial to my product career, but it's still something we can all work on. So I was going to ask you what the coolest thing you've worked on <laughs> is or has been, but it sounds like maybe the cancer destroying ninja stars might be up there, but but is that the coolest thing you've worked on or is there something even cooler than that? I think it depends on what floats your boat, you know, like I liked that, especially when I was in science. But I mean, the startup I'm partnered with, I love also. Age Rate is one of the coolest things that's coming out. It's very of the moment. So long story short, you're one age on your driver's license, right? But you're another age inside. And epigenetic testing can tell you what age you are on the inside. But you can also influence those changes through lifestyle choices. and. AgeRate in particular has developed a clock or a measurement system that is so advanced in the sense of measuring all these different sites and places in your DNA that it can give you a really good picture of that. And we're moving towards productizing it, building an application on the phone, you know, so that you can like interact with this stuff and then making those recommendations. So in terms of bringing things I love together, that's probably the coolest thing I've worked on so far. So is that a side hustle then effectively or... Effectively. It was also my, um, I was unemployed for a little bit during COVID. So it was my bridge to full-time employment. Your main hustle for a bit yeah, as well. Yeah, for a bit. But that's that's awesome. I was super happy to contribute to that. No, it sounds really cool and obviously really meaningful as well, which is, which is great. Mm-hmm. But one point you made before this call, and you've kind of said it on this call as well, is that, that data permeates everything we do. Yes. Uh, and that the world is changing fast. Yes. And I read somewhere today that we're 
creating something like nearly two megabytes of data per person per second. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, and we'll definitely need to look that up on Wikipedia as well. But <laughs> it's obvious whatever happens that there's quite a lot of data out there and it's, it's growing all the time. Mm-hmm. So how do you, in your work and the stuff that you're interested in, how do you sort the wheat from the chaff and, and make sure that you're concentrating on, on the good data and not just noise? Mm, that's always such a struggle. And it's something I've written about too, which in per, in terms of product, if you frame it this way, your company or your organization is always going to want data from you as a product manager, right? They're going to want to know you're meeting your KPIs and your OKRs and your yes, no, I don't know what's right. And the honest fact is that when you really look at that stuff, a lot of it's just vanity metrics, garbage metrics. And having that context surrounding it is super important when you decide what you care about. So for instance, with uh, age rate building a brand new application, it's like, well, what things are we going to track? Should you build for the things you track? Absolutely. Do you need to track everything? No. <laughs> you know, it. me knowing certain things will not make this product better. Me knowing other things to do with, say, user behavior, where they click, where they don't, very important. For the work at uh, FCT, developing these APIs, knowing user sentiment is going to be highly important in the beginning as we scale up. But over time, people just get mad about stuff and you have to let that slide. <laughs> And really kind of consider the quality of that data and what surrounds that whole collection process. So if you're just surveying people, for instance, I'm the worst survey taker because I just answer everything really fast and move on and say <laughs> it sucks or it rocks. Like I don't give a lot of feedback, right? So you have to be very careful, for instance, with feedback data and what you're looking at. And that also comes down to you have to be very careful where you source things from. So whether you have checks and balances in place to ensure that these data points match up or you have vetted the process thoroughly and you know for a fact that this is as good as it's going to get. Or you look at your statistics and you realize that you're meeting that model at a really good rate. That's where you can kind of make these decisions, which realistically it boils down to you need to have the discernibility to go, this is garbage. And you also have to know stats. You really do. You have to understand that stuff. Yeah, and a lot of that you've been talking about there is very much about product metrics mm-hmm. and business metrics and stuff like that. And obviously, there's also then just all of the data that we're consuming to actually do things and run machine learning algorithms on and, and all of that stuff to actually do the core business logic of the application. I mean, is that something that you have to worry about? Or is your data in actually relatively straightforward, like what you need? Or do you have to actually do quite a lot of hunting around for the types of data that might improve your platform? Well, right now, it's fairly straightforward in the sense of all the houses are built and we have the information. But as things come to pass, we're realizing, too, that sometimes certain sources aren't actually correct. So maybe they're out of date and whatnot, and it comes down to, I think, you know, what's going to be our streaming cadence, for instance? How often are we going to bring in this data as new developments grow, especially in Ontario in particular? It's just an alarming rate of construction. How do we ensure that we're on the up and up with that stuff? Is the post really the best place to get your data from? I don't know. Probably pretty close. But those are just sort of things we have to consider. And there always will be outliers in terms of something's going to be off. But eventually getting to a point where you could match two different sources and saying, like, this is the ultimate source of truth is what we want to be. We want to be that source of truth. So then you'll know that we've done our vetting for you and you don't have to worry about it. 
And is it necessarily a good thing to have all this data sloshing around? I mean, there's obviously been some high-profile stuff over the last few years, and even if we go down to things like Cambridge Analytica and stuff like that, but there's plenty of people trying to use data for bad as well as for good. Mm. I mean, have you done any work or thinking around sort of ethics in AI or ethics in, in sort of big data processing or anything like that, or is that an interest area for you? It's definitely an interest area, and it's something that I... I mean, I'm very confident in particular with FCT that, you know, they operate with integrity just due to the nature of not only the people I've experienced in the past month, but just kind of, you know, you have processes and checks and balances in place. But this does become a question, especially when you're a startup, right? Like, how do you ensure that this stuff is reasonable? And the truth is, you're going to have to go look into privacy law and, and get somebody to help you out because it's scary stuff. Like, I'm such a big, like, password nerd, for instance, huge <laughs> password nerd, because I know if I could go back in time and never have registered for Facebook, I wouldn't have done it. But I did because I was young, dumb, and on the internet. So yeah, data privacy freaks me out a lot. And it's something that I definitely think as a PM working in data, you have to consider for your user. You have to really enable them to trust you by breaking down the privacy agreement you have into simple language and being like this is what we're doing this is what we're selling this is what we're not selling move on it's a cliche but also completely true that that many of those privacy policies and and terms and conditions are just so impermeable that it's almost impossible to believe that anyone could have actually agreed to anything on them with any sense of sanity uh, (laughs) actual ownership or anything it's like yeah everyone's scrolling to the bottom and clicking next right so Mm -hmm. at best so Definitely some work to do there. And there's also the concept of explainability in AI as well. So to make sure not only that we can do cool stuff with machine learning, but that we can also in some way explain what it's doing. And some of that obviously touches on actually being able to prove that you're doing ethical stuff, Yeah. but also just in many ways to be able to sell that into people as well. Because from my experience, people are not always 100% confident in buying machine learning based products because they don't actually understand what it's doing it doesn't make sense to them. Yeah. So again I guess is that something that you've had to to work with so far or something that's on the cards? I mean I think it's pretty lucky in the sense that like what Azure is building for instance recommends you stuff that's going to help you, right? Like that that's the fundamental ethos behind it. But it does get confusing when it's people think of machine learning as this end all be all. And I think this is really true of corporations in particular. You know, we we understand that it's out there and there's these smart people that can do it, but can I just like do machine learning on that and it'll get fixed? And the answer is no. <laughs> and the answer is always going to be a no. And this is where it becomes I foresee the future of all of this and I think, you know, a lot of my my colleagues would agree there's going to be a place where PMs branch off from user experience style product to really focusing on machine learning and what that user experience looks like. And it's going to become a whole niche set of skills because building those projects and products completely different. It might it might fail, you know, and we have to be comfortable with that. And there's been a long-standing fail-forward mentality in product that never actually discusses, well, what if it just fails? You know, what if it just <laughs> it doesn't work? And that that happens with machine learning. Sometimes it just doesn't work or you you fit it wrong or you overfit or all of that stuff. So it, it's tough, but I really do think that there's going to be a, a bit of a paradigm shift in product from being an everyman to a niched everyman, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. But we spoke before this as well about how you hate bad networkers. 
smooth transitions. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Specifically, well, it's kind of a smooth transition. <laughs> we were kind of talking about Facebook. <laughs> and specific examples included uh, unpersonalized LinkedIn invites. Mm-hmm. Why does this bother you so much? One, because generally speaking, I've either interacted with someone on LinkedIn or I've put in the time to write them a message that's personal. It very much was highlighted as a job seeker where it was just like, I can't even get through with all of these highly crafted messages. So why do you think you can talk to me with nothing? But more importantly, is the fact that we forget that we're people. Like your LinkedIn network in particular, if we're going to harp on that platform for a sec, is supposed to help mutually benefit you and the person you're with, LinkedIn connected with, right? So why on earth, if I don't know you, you haven't even looked at my profile, for instance, would I bother to connect? Because there's so much over-connection in the world. Like This is one place where I want to curate something beneficial professionally. And it, we speak to this whole thing of like at first, for instance, Instagram, it was just like follow everybody and everything. And a girlfriend of mine the other day, she said, you know, I've been really curating my, my feed so that I see what I want to see. And I unfollowed someone and they freaked out on me. <laughs> and it's just like, Well, no, because this should all be mutually beneficial to you. We are consuming massive amounts of information, of data, of pictures and video and Lord knows what else. So why can't I be discerning? On the other hand, I also just think it's it's coming down to that personalization piece shows that you actually tried to put in an effort versus just mass like trying to connect with people. And it proves that you're a real person because... There are fake profiles out there. There are people that are just, you know, trying to get all sorts of information from you. So at least if you can prove you're a real human, there's a bit of a chance for a better connection. Yeah, that's fair enough. And there's been plenty of advice around how to most effectively connect with people maybe that you're not mm-hmm. so close with. That yeah, like so people that you want to connect with for professional reasons. And yeah, I've definitely said a lot of commentary out there about basically what you just said just give them a reason right because otherwise they just assume you're going to be selling them something right it's usually i've gotten a lot of sales pitches and a lot of give me a job (laughs) i am literally not the person that can get you a job not right now in the future yes but i'm not so why are you like did you even read did you even think you know i've had people ask me about my design experience i'm like i don't design things at all i am not a ux designer i'm i'm not so i can't help you but yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where there's so much literature out there. How can you not know? You know, and it's something simple to, to learn versus say, I don't know, the intricacies of the Monty Hall problem or whatnot. <laughs> you also mentioned another thing that you don't like is unsolicited advice. Yeah. Now, obviously, there are no shortage of people online prepared to give you advice <laughs> about basically anything. And Many stories and not even stories, things that I've seen myself of predominantly, for example, female doctors getting lectured by random men uh, about <laughs> things that are the, uh, are the female doctor's specific field of expertise or it's something that they actually worked on themselves. Yeah, it's wild. Now, on LinkedIn then, and or anywhere else that you're active, do you get a lot of that kind of nonsense from men, especially in a field like yours where, you know, you're working a lot with data science and machine learning and mm. obviously product as well? Like, do you do you get a lot of that kind of condescending advice from people? Because you're also quite active as well, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you're on, on LinkedIn, I mean, you're, you're doing a lot of posts, you're, you're putting yourself out there and having opinion pieces. Like, do you get that kind of unwanted attention from men trying to basically mansplain you? 
I think it's a, it's a little less on the mansplaining side, at least maybe due to the fact that I was working with younger clients and younger organizations. So we're all kind of on that, that same vibe. But the biggest thing I get is a lot of like trying to be funny, but being condescending about something. So it, it's not necessarily a mansplain so much as it's, you know, you could really do X, Y, and Z and it would make things so much better. Ha <laughs> ha. And you're, you're just sitting there going, didn't ask you. I really didn't ask you. So I don't really care, you know? And I think the, the truth is if you're out there and you're just spouting advice, whether it's a post, um, if you're posting and you're writing your own advice piece, like that's fine. But if it's a response to somebody's comment or you're trying to really, you know, interact on that one to one level, unsolicited advice is just the first thing that's going to bristle somebody up because you, you automatically go into defense mode, whether they mean it or not, or it's like, you know, it just becomes like really unfortunate. And I think as a young woman, in particular, a woman that always gets carded at the liquor store, I get a lot of condescending remarks or, you know, oh, let me help you mentality when I don't, I don't need your help. I didn't ask for it. And when I want help, I'll go get it. I'm a very big proponent of I go and get what I want. It's hard to ask for help. But at the same time, if you don't, you're your own worst advocate. So I've learned that the hard way. And I just really don't think that there's room for garbage out there. Mansplaining, whole other problem. I feel like it happens more in my like my running and stuff like that than it does in my actual professional career. Like so I'm a runner like for funsies. <laughs> and that's where I get a lot of a lot of like people trying to tell me what to do, men trying to say, you know, you should really do this for your body and all of that. And that's just a whole other can of worms. But yeah, unsolicited advice just makes people feel gross and they don't want to connect with you anymore. And it doesn't add to the conversation really, right? Like, because you don't ever frame it as in my opinion, you just give it and nobody likes that. Yeah, that's fair enough. And uh, one, one day when we get to one night in running, we can, we can have that discussion as well. But, um, <laughs> but obviously, you, yeah, you've touched on it yourself as well. You're a young woman, you're relatively early on in your career in mm-hmm. product terms, yeah, just a few years, uh, a few years in now. So still coming up through the ranks in many ways. Yeah. Do you feel that you've had equal opportunities as a woman coming up? Or I mean, well, it's obviously let's reverse slightly because you know you've already given the comment about the guy who said that you, if you had a bigger chest size, that you'd maybe get the job. So I'm assuming that the answer to that's a big fat no. <laughs> but but in general, do you feel that you're getting equality in opportunity, or do you think that it's been a real struggle? I think there's bias that people don't want to admit. So, and I, it's funny. So there's this, what, I don't remember the website right now, but there's a website online where you can say, upload your LinkedIn profile and get people like vote on it and whatnot. And that sounds horrifying. It, it, you know what it, it kind of is, but it's also very helpful in a way like where they, there's specific things. So you can try to like understand how professional it comes across or if it's, you know, for a, a model and thing, something different. But I got a lot of feedback about like, it's too flirty. (laughs) And I sit there and think, if I was a man, that would never happen. Ever. There is no way. And I sit there and I go, the one thing that always is a struggle as a woman, and I think it unfortunately will always be until we can really redefine this paradigm is anytime I'm nice, people see it as something, you know, else. And that's the unfortunate bit. So when you try to be nice and get to know people, because as a PM, that's what you're literally built to do. And people look at you because of your your sex or your gender or how you present and they go, 
oh, but you must be hitting on me. That's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) I think banking was worse. I've just been a very fortunate woman, though, in the sense of I've managed to get a good network around me that like kind of advocates for me and, you know, really put me in good positions in that sense. But yeah, I, I think there's definitely, you know, some bias in that. There's bias in the way I look. Like, I'm blonde. Like, so funny and I can make these jokes or whatever. But at the end of the day, I think people definitely look at me and go, there's no possible way you can actually know about that thing. There's no possible way until you until you open your mouth and explain yourself and then they kind of sit back. But that first impression will always be tainted until we come together and work on it. So do you feel that you're having to work doubly hard to prove yourself? Hmm. Sometimes. I think in the interview process, yes. Yes. Right now, in terms of now that I've won the job, for instance, not so much. And again, it speaks to like the company I'm with now, FCT, like they're just incredible in the sense of really like driven by diversity. They're voted one of the top places for women in Canada, you know, like, so I kind of lucked out. But yeah, I, I saw it all the time where it's like, I'm trying to convince you that I'm smart or that I'm good at what I do. And then it, you know, you get, oh, well, you don't have enough experience. And I'm like, really? Oh, okay, cool. Is it really that though? And you come to find out that it's not, you know, through different conversations. And that's where it becomes very disheartening. And what advice would you give to someone trying to break into product now? Oh, man. Male or female, but just given your experience. And as I say, you're still relatively early on in your career. So Mm -hmm. I guess you can probably still remember getting that first job. Yeah. What's your, what's your advice for for that next, the, the next you? Honestly, I think. One interesting piece of advice would be, you know, if you really don't understand Agile and all that, just read something so you have the basic words down because hearing things like, you know, this is a, I can't even think of the different terms that would bug me at the time because now I'm so used to them, but I was just like, I don't even know what this means, right? (laughs) Oh, sprint. I didn't know what that was. When I started my first job, I was like, what's a sprint? Where are we running? I don't get it. (laughs) So understanding the terminology is very important. Getting certifications for product. Okay. In my opinion, not so important. There are a million different courses out there that are going to try to sell you. You can teach a lot of that stuff to yourself. What you can't do. Now, wait a second. You've got a PSPO though, right? I do. And I did because there's that weird barrier there. But honestly, I don't think it added much. I don't. I was bored and jobless. So (laughs) I was like, let's do it, you know, and honest. And that one is a really good one in the sense of it never expires. So I was pretty confident about taking that. But do I think that it was worth it? No. I don't think that I got hired anywhere because I had a PSPO. You know, like I don't think I got any of my interviews because of that or that it changed anybody's opinion of my past, right? I think that there's this bit of networking that you have to do and this openness that you have to cultivate. And as somebody who's extremely introverted, getting out of my shell was the biggest game changer for me and still is. The other advice I would say is is pick stuff you, you're interested in. Instead of trying to be the PM of everything, maybe look at niching down a bit because that's where you're going to stand out more. You know, if you're spreading yourself too thin, it's not going to help you be a better product manager because there is a certain depth you have to get to. And while the, we always talk about these T-shaped professionals and whatever is kind of trendy, <laughs> you know, it's it's really more about can you communicate? Can you market? Can you negotiate? Those are the top three sort of things that kind of come to mind other than how much do you know about your domain? And there are certain PMs that are way more focused on, again, user interaction, how these things look and whatnot. 
my focus is very different. And I can say, you know, I'm very thankful that I don't have to build any mobile applications at FCT because it's one of the things that I struggle with. So why put yourself through that when you don't even like it? Like, why are you doing that to yourself? (laughs) And uh, yeah, I don't know. A lot of people talk about like taking on free projects and stuff. Do that. Don't go get a certification. Go take on a free project. You'll learn a lot more. (laughs) PSPO is going to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll have to hope that the Scrum Foundation or whoever it is that does that is that they're not uh, listening to this. I'm I'm pretty sure they're not. I, I don't think so. I... I really think at the end of the day, that was something that I thought maybe would unlock some doors. And in my particular instance, it didn't. But maybe it will for someone else. Also, like, look at how you tailor your resume. That's actually a big part of it. Like, product itself, you will gain experience in. But really looking at those transferable skills and whatnot, that's where my, my interviews went up and my hit rate was increased was really just looking at how to tailor properly. And it's not about tailoring for the ATS. It's about or applicant tracking system, sorry. It's about actually tailoring your answers once you get the interview, right? Which, honestly, I was abysmal at in the first couple. I, I just was <laughs> you know, shocked that I was out of a job and was like desperate. And you should really just be more tailored and confident because that's how you'll break in the most. And where can people find you if they want to not offer you any unsolicited advice uh, <laughs> in future and talk about product? If they want to talk about product, LinkedIn's pretty good. I'm also writing on Medium now and then, which is a lot of fun. It's called The Mind Brain. If anybody out there in your audience watches Archer, it's a reference to um, something Dr. Krieger says when he's talking about thinking. And he's like, my mind brain is exploding. And (laughs) that's kind of how I felt initially when I started out. So that's why I named it that. If you want a tarot card reading, then we'll have to go on Instagram and you can come to Heal With M. (laughs) And I can tell you all about your future in product through a tarot reading but (laughs) there's got to be an app idea coming out of that as well though mate oh my gosh there's so many tarot apps out there i don't think (laughs) i need to make another one i think you just got to pick one that you like (laughs) well that's been a fantastic chat so thanks very much for spending the time Uh, obviously wish you the best of luck as you progress through your two simultaneous hustles oh thank you (laughs) we'll obviously uh, stay in touch on on linkedin and beyond but for now thanks very much for spending the time Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And it's fun to just like chat honestly with people. As ever, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, sign up for the mailing list, or go to the podcast app of your choice, subscribe and share widely with your friends and colleagues so they can all be inspired too. I'll be back soon, but as for now, thank you and good night.